Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the Fed Scoop News Countdown, the three most important federal news stories of the week, as selected by two experts in the federal government community. It's Friday, May 20th, 2022. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Today, my experts for the Fed Scoop News Countdown are Angela Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life, former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. And it's a theme show kind of today. Uh, Jeff Neal, the host of ChiefHRO.com, former Chico at DHS. Friends, welcome. It's great to see both of you. Thanks for coming on the program today. Thank you. We start the countdown with... Number three. Angie, your choice at number three, the third most important story of the week, is the Transportation Security Administration screeners uh, potentially up for a 30% pay raise on average. Legislation in the House would do that. Why'd you choose this and what should people watch as this rolls forward, Angie? I thought that what was most important about this article actually is the fact that um, we have legislators or congressmen um, that are actually pushing to move an agency back into Title V when the whole rest of the world wants to get out of Title V and wants to be much, much more progressive. And so um, having been boots on the ground at the time, it, it kind of hurts my heart to see that we're going backwards um, for an agency that was given so much flexibility and actually has the, the means and the ways to provide that 30% increase without taking them back to Title V. What flexibility would that take away specifically, Angie, for somebody like me who doesn't follow it as closely as you do? Well, some, some of the flexibilities um, that they're taking away are things that we were able to do for TSA, for the workforce. They were able to um, institute some very innovative um, workforce-friendly policies that had to do with, for example, being able to, something as simple as donating your sick leave uh, rather than just your annual leave to fellow employees that might actually need it. Or during the shutdown, we were actually able to pay the TSA employees because they weren't under Title V at that time. And so those are key things that I worry about that in our quest to get equality and to do a pay raise, which we could have done anyhow with or without legislation, that now by forcing them back into Title V, they're gonna lose many of the creative things that again, TSA was able to do for its workforce. Jeff, what do you see here? Same as Angie? Um, yeah, mostly. Um, I actually testified in the hearings that they had uh, on this particular bill. And, um, and when I testified, uh, I was actually called by the, um, by the Republicans to testify. And I, I did advise them that, you know, I worked for a Democratic administration, but they wanted me to testify anyway. And I, I explained that I, I thought that moving uh, to the general schedule uh, to a 70-year-old pay system uh, was silly. It, it didn't. It wouldn't accomplish a lot of what they said they wanted. They wanted something that would give more money to the TSOs. The last time I had talked to TSA about this, more than a year ago, they still hadn't done uh, general schedule job classifications of all of their TSO positions. So I think a lot of TSOs are thinking, "Oh, they're going to make us. T t they're going to make us GS, and we're all going to be GS nines or 11s. And they're not. They're most likely going to be BGS five, sixes, and sevens. And so, so they may find that some people don't get a pay raise out of this at all. There may be TSOs who get a big pay raise. There may be some who get none. 
And there may be some who end up on pay retention for a while because they're making more than they'll make under the general schedule. So it's um, it, it's not a particularly well thought out bill. And I think the frankly, I think the union's biggest interest in it is that bringing them under Title V gives them full Chapter 71 bargaining, uh, not the bargaining that they have under the provisions of the Aviation and Transportation Security Act. So uh, I think this is a bad bill uh, with good intentions. The intention of paying TSOs fairly is really good. Uh, right now, TSO pay stinks. TSA is competing. Literally, they are competing for talent with people like Walmart. Um, and Walmart, in some cases, is paying better. So if you have your choice of standing at a cash register at Walmart or standing at a checkpoint and dealing with people who are being total jerks when they're flying now, um, you know, which would you pick? Yeah. Well, so and, I, and the jerk, the jerk quotient at the airport is increasing exponentially on a daily basis. It sounds like too. Yes. The JQ is, is much, much higher than it used to be. <laughs> JQ. We have a new measure now that's come out of this program. I love that. Um, is uh, the broader question here that doesn't just apply to TSA too, Jeff, that, that you raised is what's the point in 2022 and beyond of moving people back into the general schedule at any agency in any capacity? Angie, you and I have talked about that on a number of situations, number of times too, about how antiquated the system is, how busted it is, and how much the people who have to implement it even don't really care for it. It's a thing that people know. And it's, you know, people always talk about the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. And so a lot of people look at the general schedule and say, well, we know it. We know how it works. And although it has lots of problems, it hasn't caused the government to get to mission failure. So you know, let's use something we know. Angie. Yeah, that's whenever I said earlier, like it hurts my heart, you know, to watch an agency be given uh, so much flexibility and now have it taken away from them under the under the the premise that somehow it's going to make life better for a TSO. I absolutely agree that they should be paid better. There is no doubt in my mind. I mean, many of our folks, uh, you know, it, it's I'm not even sure it's a living wage in some of the urban areas that they have to work, and so. I think that that's hugely important. But, you know, one thing Congress doesn't address is where exactly is the money coming from to pay for all of these salaries? So, I mean, TSA has been very upfront on how many billions this is going to cost the agency. And I don't see that anywhere at all addressed in the budget. Angie Bailey's choice for the third most important federal news story of the week is legislation to raise pay for Transportation Security Administration screeners. Jeff Neal, your choice at number three is my colleague uh, Billy Mitchell's story at fedscoop.com. Army Secretary looks to hiring flexibilities to boost cyber talent recruitment. You have educated me over the years that now whenever I see the words hiring flexibilities, my ears kind of perk up, not necessarily always in a positive way. Do you see what Secretary Warmoth at the Army is talking about, thinking about as a positive development? Yes. But you know, there, there were, I, I picked this story because I thought it, it was a really interesting one on several different levels. You know, first of all, the idea that an agency is having difficulty hiring cyber talent shouldn't surprise anybody. This is a field that's in enormous demand right now, and the federal government isn't 
uh, you know, isn't necessarily the best employer uh, if you are a, an expert in cybersecurity because of pay issues and inflexibilities and a variety of other things. So that's that's one level of the story. Uh, the, the, the demand for cyber talent has only increased in the last few years and the federal government's ability to, um, to compete for that talent has been improved, but it's not caught up to anywhere near the private sector. The other thing though, is when, when you read this story, you'll see that what the army secretary is talking about doing is using authorities that they were granted six years ago. And so it's not like, oh my God, we have to go to OPM and get them to give us all kinds of of flexibility. They were given a lot of flexibility and they haven't been using a lot of that flexibility. And uh, Angie, I know from her years at OPM, used to get very, very frustrated when people would come and ask for authorities and they would be given authorities and then they wouldn't do anything with them. And then they would come along and say, well, we need some help. And you know, I, I remember Angie saying to DHS at one point, you know, DHS had this authority and he didn't use it. And so we took it back. <laughs> so I, I think it's interesting that we that we we do have this problem on recruiting cyber talent, that agencies are trying to do things about it, that the Army wants to do something about it. But a big part of the Army's solution is to start using something that they could have started using six years ago. Angie, you're you're smiling as Jeff is telling that story, and you and I talked right before you left DHS about the cyber talent management system that you set up there. One of the things on which it was modeled, you told me, was the cyber accepted service at uh, DOD. It's different, but there are some there were some things that you looked at as that system came into development, if I remember correctly. Um, this got to be frustrating because that was the first thing I underlined, Jeff, when I saw this article um, that I underlined in red. Nearly six years later, Billy writes, Warmoth said the Army still faces a challenge in competing with other organizations for cyber talent. That must be why you kind of uh, smiled a little bit when Jeff was talking about the uh, capabilities, the flexibilities that you had let at OPM that people didn't use. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's rampant with this. We always run to the Hill or to OPM and and ask for authorities. And then we get scared, right? Because we're always afraid of litigation. And so we back ourselves right back into a corner of making sure that we stay as close to Title V as we can. Because, oh my God, what if OPM comes in and audits us? Oh, what about the IG? Oh, the unions? Oh, you know, the list goes on and on how much we can talk ourselves out of being, out of using the very flexibilities that we've been given. And so, the challenge that I gave the team at, at, at DHS when I was there to develop CTMS was, look, go, the sky's the limit and build a system for the future. Don't build it for today's problems or even yesterday's problems. Let's build it for the future. So this is the thing that I've said to all federal agencies when I was at DHS, and I know OMB fully supports this. What we built with CTMS, the playbook, the framework, everything's available for any federal agency, including the Army, to use, right? It's it's all done. Now, it doesn't mean that they won't have the hard work of doing things because CTMS was built by and for DHS, but the framework of all the flexibilities, all the hard work, all the legislative thinking through, regulations, et cetera, is completely done. And so 
part of what I'm, I was smiling at is, is, you know, what, what Jeff was talking about, like whenever I was at OPM and then at DHS. So, I mean, look, we just got to stop admiring these problems and get out of our own way and start actually implementing. Um, the, if from the Great Minds Think Alike department of the FedScoop News Countdown, this is your number three story, Jeff. And Angie, you picked this for number two this week. And how do we get out of that admiring the problem situation? Because it's not just it's not just peculiar to one agency, and it's not just peculiar to one issue. This is something that I see on an ongoing basis talking to people. Yeah, we've been talking about this kind of same thing for years and years. What finally bust something or someone or some problem out of that loop? I think it's leadership that has guts to do it, right? I mean, whenever I worked at DHS, I, I could not have had more support from Chip Foljam, Russ Deo, um, Jay Johnson, you know, the, the secretaries that were there, Elaine Duke, um, Claire Grady, like the list goes on and on. And by the way, that's both um, a Democrat and a Republican administration, okay? I couldn't have had any higher level support of folks that were willing to go forward. And we all said to each other, look, of course we're going to get sued. Of course there's going to be litigation. But you know what? All you really need to do is, is find ways to mitigate that as best as you can, but not be afraid of it. And so that's where I think, you know, our partnership with both CISA and the CIO organization, as well as having outstanding leadership, is what it really takes, I think, to move this forward. Jeff, here's the passage of this story. In addition to the nearly six years later, the other one that jumped out at me, General James McConville, Chief of Staff of the Army, says once the Army identifies talent or trains soldiers to become cyber warriors, has to find out, has to find ways to keep them around. Okay, again, same issue that we've been talking about in personnel for as long as we've been talking about personnel. He told the story of a young medical specialist who works for the Army Software Factory. General McConville said he codes at a PhD level. What we want to be able to do is credential that capability. How do we keep that person in the Army? How do we credential that person and, and then incentivize him to stay? He asked that as a rhetorical question, but at some point in time, that and not just in cyber, but all across the government, that's the question we have to figure out a real answer to, isn't it? Not just to ask it rhetorically and then hope that something materializes. Yeah, and, and what happens is people sometimes forget that there are a variety of things that drive people uh, and a, a variety of things that cause people to stay where they are. You know, obviously, one of them is pay. Pay is pay in some respects is kind of a hygiene factor where it needs to be at a, a good enough level, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the best pay because a lot of people, if they have what they considered to be fair pay will not change to a different job just to get 5% more or 10% more. So pay needs to be high enough to be very competitive, but not necessarily be the highest pay. Uh, you also have to have a place that's a good place to work. And right now for a lot of occupations, that means a place where you have flexibility to work from home. And you know, there's a lot of pressure to try to put people back into offices, both in government and in, and in the private sector. And that's causing some people to walk. So you have to have a workplace, a work uh, situation that, that fits a person's uh, interests and their needs. And then the other thing is you have to have interesting work to do. And one of the things the government is notorious for doing is 
going out and hiring talented young people and then expecting them to wait 20 years before they get to work on something interesting. And if you do that, they're going to leave. So you've got to really compete on the, all three of those things. And I think sometimes the government looks at only one or two of those and, and doesn't look at the complete picture of what you need to do to, to not only attract the talent and develop them, but then to keep them around. Uh, the other thing you have to accept is that, particularly with younger talent now, uh, you shouldn't expect that you're going to hire somebody and they're going to uh, be retiring 30 years later from your organization. Uh, you need to accept the fact that people are going to move in and out of different organizations and support people in doing that. You know, I, I've lost people in organizations I've led before who came back a few years later. You know, we treated them very nicely. They went out and found what they thought was a better opportunity. They got some different experience. And then they came back and said, any chance I could come back? And if they were good employees, my answer was always, yes. Yes, definitely. We can bring you back and we'd be happy to. And people need to do more of that. Jeff Neal's choice at number three and Angie Bailey's choice at number two. My colleague Billy Mitchell's story on fedscoop.com. Army secretary looks to hiring flexibilities to boost cyber talent recruitment. Now, um, item number two on the Great Minds Think Alike story on uh, the FedScoop News Countdown this week. Jeff, your story at number two is uh, also about the Transportation Security Administration raises. Is there, in, in the great Washington spirit of everything has been said, but not everyone has said it, do you want to add anything to the conversation that we had about that earlier in the program? Did you not say anything you wanted to? Yeah, the one thing I didn't say, uh, and and I think it is important, is you know TSA has had this authority, uh, really very broad authority, since they were stood up. So for more than twenty years, they've had uh, a lot of flexibility, and I have heard them talk about some of the things that they won't be able to do if they go into under Title Five, that are things that they don't do right now. You know, well, we're, we've been thinking about doing so-and-so, and we're considering doing so-and-so. They've had 20 years. And the reality is that what they created with their almost blanket, well, it was blanket uh, flexibility. Um, Aviation and Transportation Security Act said, notwithstanding any other provision of law, that TSA can design a, a personnel system for their, for their screening workforce. So they have carte blanche to do what they wanted. And what they did was about probably 90 or 95% replicate Title V. So, so they used a few flexibilities. What they really used the flexibilities for more than anything was to, they used them not to do good. Uh, they used them in ways that were, um, that were very harsh and not helpful, and that are the reasons that TSA still has uh, the lowest uh, federal employee viewpoint surveys of almost any agency in the federal government. And for example, when they were first standing up, they hired a bunch of people. But because they could fire people instantly if they wanted to, they also fired a lot of people. They overhired, then they decided they had hired too many people, and then they fired a bunch of them, and then they realized they had fired too many people, and then they hired a bunch of them back. Uh, they came up with a pay system that was ridiculous. The pay system they came up with 
has um, has merit-based pay raises in it. And a lot of people say, yeah, merit-based pay increases are great. Well, I, I, I was the leader of a panel, the Blue Ribbon panel, that did a, an analysis of what TSA has been doing with its workforce. And what we found was that if you were a TSO, Transportation Security Officer, and you were incredible, you got perfect performance ratings, you were a water-walking TSO, you could go from the bottom of your pay grade, your pay band, to the top of the pay band in only 30 years. Oh, that's so, it? Great. So, and so, so what they did is they replicated Title V, about 95%, and then they used some of the flexibilities, quite a few of the flexibilities, to do things that were not good. Um, and you know, and doing things, doing things like um, doing doing testing of TSOs to see how well they could perform, which is something they were required to do, but then not telling them exactly why they weren't passing tests. And so they 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 they've brought a lot of this on themselves over the the past two decades. So I I think this is an important story. I think it's a step backwards. Uh, I think TSA has mostly brought it on themselves, uh, and it's unfortunate that that's the case. But for the most part, um, they made this particular bed, and now, depending on what the Senate does, they may get a chance to lie in it. Now, the ranking member of the House Homeland Security Committee, John Katko from New York, Angie, said he thinks the bill's dead on arrival in the Senate either to that point or to any points that you wanted to make when we were talking about this earlier that you didn't get a chance to make any takeaways from any of that? Yeah. I mean, it won't surprise me if it's dead on arrival because it's, you know, this is something the house supports, but I, I've never really thought that the Senate really kind of supported that. I mean, we, we certainly um, had a lot of opportunities to go up and, and speak with staff about this. And I think, Many of the things that they're really trying to accomplish with the legislation could truly be done administratively. And I do think TSA um, is I, I look, I love my TSA peeps. I think that they're I think they're doing the best that they can to move in the right direction. It maybe has taken them quite a quite a bit of time to get there, but I, I do have confidence in them in trying to move things forward and do the right thing for the TSOs. They they do care. Jeff Neal's choice is the second most important uh, story of the week is the uh, House moving this bill to advance pay for the Transportation Security Administration. Countdown continues in a moment. Today is the last day to vote for the best bosses in federal IT. The voting closes tonight, Friday, May 20th. If you're listening to this later, you missed out. You can find the link to see the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And we come to the end of the countdown at... Number one. Now, Jeff, since you've done this, this is Angie's first time on the countdown. Jeff, you did this before when I was at the radio station. And so I guess you felt comfortable in breaking the rules. And you gave me two stories at number one. You can't, you can't do that. I can only handle one at a time. All right, here's the headlines and the two you gave me. Uh, my colleague John Hewitt-Jones' story, AFGE files unfair labor practice complaint against EEOC over the end of full telework and another jhj story uh tensions flare over legacy tech at opm back office negotiations with staff why two first of all why did you break my rules and secondly why did you think these were such a big deal that you put them at the top of your list 
He broke your rules because he, he's Jeff Neal. Well, that's, you know, Angie, that's exactly right. And that, I, I, when I got the email and he sent the, sto the stories and I saw he had two, I went, well, of course he does. Of course he does. Because that's, okay. that's what he does. All right, bashing off. Go ahead, Jeff. All right, I didn't, Francis, I didn't break your rules. I, I slightly bent them. Okay, fine, uh, and, fine. Okay. The reason is that this is the same story. Um, this is uh, AFGE and federal agencies fighting over bringing people back into offices. So one of them happens to be at OPM, the other one happens to be at EEOC, but the battle is the same. And that is to what degree will federal employees start working on site again? And how are they going to deal with the issues that arise out of that? And what are the unions gonna do to try to stop it? Um, and I, I think what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of unfair labor practice charges. We're gonna see uh, protracted bargaining over this um, because for the most part, when the agencies are still bargaining, they're not gonna be putting people back in the offices. And the reality is that this whole idea of now we have people, a lot of people who are working at home more and a lot of agencies want them to come back. A lot of people on the Republican side on, on the Hill want to require that people be working in federal offices again and not doing work from home. And I think this is going to be one of the biggest issues in not only the civil service, but in the workplace over the next few years. You know, we had a lot of people who used to hate telework. And they said that, you know, that the jobs that in their organization simply could not be done at home. There was no way to do it. They would be at, be at mission failure, never going to happen, can't happen, just no. And then a pandemic hits. And then the choice is, okay, we find a way to let these folks do their work from home or we have mission failure. And lo and behold, a lot of them found a way. And now they're saying, well, these people can't stay at, you know, at home all the time because it just won't work. Well, you know, we kind of proved in a lot of cases that it does work. And I, you know, I tend to be old fashioned enough, I guess, that I do think that 100% uh, work from home for most occupations is probably not good because I think you, you lose a sense of team that you can develop when people are actually physically seeing one another. But I don't think we're ever going back to the, uh, the requirement to be in the office for virtually everybody all the time. Uh, and I think if the federal government doesn't, uh, doesn't adapt to the situation the same way the private sector is having to adapt uh, and the same way the private sector is learning and making mistakes, uh, if the government doesn't do that, it'll find itself uh, completely unable to compete for talent. And so this particular issue, I think, is going to be with us for a number of years, and it's going to be a very big deal. Angie, there are two things that I took away from these two stories other than Jeff Neal being Jeff Neal. And that was one, I thought it was rather ironic that both of the agencies involved in these stories deal with human capital workforce issues. It's not like this is tangential to the operation of the agency. EEOC and OPM are like two of the major agencies that deal with workforce issues. The other thing is, I wonder 
how much of this, the position of the unions, is about working on site and how much of it is about the agencies making people work on site? Because to Jeff's point about teamwork, there's a lot of folks that want to go in on an ongoing basis, maybe not every day, maybe not multiple times a week, but want that continued connection with their colleagues in a collaborative environment, if, if I'm reading it right. Yeah, I th so I think the unions are representative of their constituents in this particular case. Sometimes, sometimes, unfortunately, the unions have their own agenda, but I think in this particular case, they're speaking on behalf of their workforces. And you're right, I don't think it's about not coming into the office. I think it's about this mandatory must come into the office, like a certain number of days or um, per, per pay period, et cetera, because most, most people are saying, tell me again why I need to come in because I've, I've been able to prove that I could do my mission not only well, but even better than I was doing it before from while working at home. So I think that that's a lot of the, the tension that's going to go on across many of the agencies. But like Jeff, I agree, like I, there's value in getting together. Um, and seeing, seeing people and doing things in person and breaking bread, you know, or many decisions, as we used to say way, way back in the day, you know, some of the best decisions were made over martinis over lunch. Not that I was probably old enough to do that, but you know what I'm trying to say. And so my point is, is that there's value in people coming together. But I will, let me just say this, and I, I foot stomped this two years ago with the White House and OMB as well, whenever everybody was, let's go home. I worried then and I still worry today about the impact this has had on the cities in which we worked in, right? If you go to DC, it's like a ghost town. You can't even hardly find a taxi, let alone if you think about all of the subculture, including the homeless, by the way, who have been impacted by us no longer working in these urban environments, which is mostly where these offices were, um, I, I worry about that, right? And so philosophically, we have to ask ourselves, well, what responsibility do we have to these cities? Is it just that, okay, now the suburbs grow back up and maybe that's how the pendulum swings because, you know, that's what the pendulum does. But um, I, I do think that we need, I think that there's more to consider here than just what's in the best interest of, of me as an employee. Um, what, what, how does my decision impact the entire ecosystem, if you will, of what goes on in, in the world of work? Because he's Jeff Neal, Jeff Neal has selected two stories as his most important federal news story of the week. AFG's uh, filing an unfair labor practice complaint against EEOC and tensions flare at OPM uh, uh, as they go back to the office. Angie, your choice at number one is basically a, a take uh, from Congress on the one-year anniversary of the cyber executive order. And we talked about your role in standing up CTMS at DHS to try to feed the talent pool there. Um, what is your what is your sense of where we are a year later from a talent perspective regarding cyber, not just what you experienced at DHS, but what you're seeing and what your friends are telling you and so on at other agencies across government? Are we doing better are, or are we doing the things that we need to do talent-wise to get better a year on? So I do think from a talent perspective, um, with regard to, to cyber, look, it, it's a tough field, right? There's many, um, many opportunities out there. But one of the first things that we need to do is get to ground truth. 
And often what I hear all the time is, you know, we can't get cyber talent because we don't pay them well enough. But yet when we built CTMS and we did it based on market-based salaries, so we did all kinds of market research. At the entry level, there is absolutely no doubt we do not pay enough within the federal government at the entry level. At the most highest cyber ninja levels, we're never going to be able to compete with seven-figure salaries, stock options, bonuses, et cetera. But that group in the middle that comes in day in and day out and does the cyber work, we are competitive with the private sector. So we need to we need to stop believing the rhetoric that we keep telling ourselves because the data doesn't actually support what we keep saying. The second thing I would say is, uh, with no disrespect to the chief of staff of the army, but the question isn't about always, how do I retain them? Because to Jeff's earlier point, this isn't about 30 year careers. When I was the Chico at DHS, what, what my goal was, not just for cyber, but for whoever came in, because I think this is across all the professions, is how can I give them the best experience, work, work experience? How can I do that for them? How can I take care of them as an employee and their families um, so that they can make sure that they actually can do the job? And so my message on all of this is, is that it's not about retaining people forevermore because you're not going to. It's about giving them the best possible experience while they're with us, including giving them mission work that is meaningful and things that are impactful and that they want to do. And then when they go and off to private sector or back to, you know, to a university, get a, a continuing degree or whatever, make those opportunities then for them to come back to us just as easy as it was for them to leave us. Um, you know, so keep that door open so that we can, because flow is good, especially in the cyber world, having that influx of talent coming in and going out, I think is great because here's the thing about cyber. This is actually why I picked this as being my number one article. And I think the article touches on this. Cybersecurity is a team sport. It is not just a federal government responsibility. It is not just a CISA responsibility within DHS. It is a team sport, meaning it takes both industry, um, it, you know, as well as the federal government, state, local, and us as individuals uh, to really play our part if we're going to make sure that, that our cyber goals are achieved. Jeff, to Angie's point about providing the best possible work experience, is it helpful or does it maybe not make a difference at all or something else that agencies across government are thinking about their employees as internal customers and trying to apply the same kind of customer experience uh, principles to dealing with those employees that it does to dealing with citizens under things like the customer experience executive order and so on? That is important. And, and I, I think we need to see more of that in the government. You know, when you look at how some agencies treat their employees, um, some of them treat them very well. They keep them engaged. They, they do a lot of good things and others don't. Uh, there are agencies that, that really view employees as disposable. And I think that is a, is a big problem. I think it's, People need to be much more responsive to the needs of the workforce, particularly right now. You know, we have an unemployment rate around 3%. And economists will tell you that 3% unemployment is full employment because 
of you know, normal churn in jobs, you're never going to be at at zero percent unemployment. If if you did, that would be incredibly bad for the economy. Uh, so as long as unemployment rates remain very very low, there's going to be a massive competition for talent, and the more in demand talent uh, will be able to just walk out the door when they want. You know, one of the things I'm hearing uh, in government agencies to some extent and and a lot more in the private sector now is people are having trouble not only finding people but once they find them make it an arrangement with them offer them a job agree on pay and benefits and everything they're having trouble getting them to show up i can't tell you how many people have told me in the last few months about uh, having people who were scheduled to report to work on a monday morning and they just didn't show up didn't call, didn't do anything, ghosted the, you know, the, the employer, wouldn't respond to emails or phone calls. And that's getting to be um, a not uncommon thing to have happen. So when you look at, the, the, at, a, at a workforce in a labor market where the pendulum that Angie was talking about earlier, in this case, has swung so far from, from the employer makes the rules, the employer is king, to the employer is chasing after uh, the talent because now the talent has the upper hand. And when the talent has the upper hand, employers have to to be much, much more responsive to employee needs. And if they're not, they're going to find themselves not being able to hire the people they need, and they're going to be in a world of hurt. Angela Bailey's choice is the most important federal news story of the week is the, uh, the, Cyber Executive Order one-year anniversary and the House Homeland Security Cyber Infrastructure Protection and Innovation Subcommittee taking a look at it. Uh, and that concludes this week's Fed Scoop News Countdown. Angie Bailey, what a wonderful first time. You Thank nailed you. it your first time on the show. And Jeff, it was great to have you back and get you back in the mix on doing this program again. Happy to be here. Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe, get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review to help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday with a look inside the drone program at Army Futures Command. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Have a great weekend. Thanks very much for listening.